There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to another episode of At The Margin. Today I'm joined by David Zetland. David is a professor at Leiden University and an expert on the political economy of water management. We discuss the economics behind water management, how politics can get in the way. We even touch on the economics and politics of Irish water charges. David is a great speaker and this is a topic that I really enjoyed. I recommend you check out David's podcast called Jive Talking when where he discusses these topics and others in great detail. David also has a book and other relevant online material that I've linked in the podcast description. Just a quick note to say thanks to the patrons. If you enjoy the podcast and want to throw a few shillings in the tip jar, check out patreon.com forward slash at the margin. Okay, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, well, thanks, uh, David Zatlin. Great to have you here on a dual cast, I suppose, between... Uh, at the Margin podcast and your Jive Talking podcast. So I'll say for anybody who's listening to At the Margin, check out Jive Talking. Anybody who's listening to Jive Talking, check, check out, out At the Margin. Margin. And uh, we'll hopefully um, some uh, different listeners will be able to uh, enjoy uh, the different podcasts. Okay, so talk about water and your work on water. Sort of, I suppose, goes on in two different areas in terms of the economics, but then brings into the po- in terms of the politics and how they interact and how it maybe plays out in the real world. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it'd be interesting to just lay the foundations when it comes to the, the whole economic issue and why economics can help us when it comes to managing, managing water. Um, and you've written a lot about how, I suppose, water is a scarce resource and perhaps that scarcity is becoming more binding when it comes to decision-making. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just set the scene and tell us a bit about, well, why it's scarce, why that is becoming a problem, and maybe perhaps, you know, a, a growing problem. Good. Um, yeah, so those are, are good questions to start with. So uh, the, the way I kind of approach this is that um, for most of human history, water has been free, more or less, uh, abundant, and uh, therefore we didn't need to manage it as an economic good. Uh, meaning that we could just take it for granted. It was like a public good, the way that we talk about it in economics. And um, uh, and we know that as a public good gets congested, uh, such as a, a nice open road where there's plenty of space for you to drive your car, 
or your bicycle for that matter, as it becomes congested, you have to start to impose some kind of rules. Maybe you have to impose a toll. Maybe you have to, you know, uh, limit people's access. And so that public good turns into a common pool good. And then a common pool good, you might want to privatize in some way and put rights around it, for example, a toll road. With water, it's exactly the same. Everybody can take water out of the river if they feel like it. But then if there's too many people, we have to start to ration that water to prevent the river from uh, collapsing. The environmental cost is a really interesting, but not always related. Not That's not the first problem that people worry about. They worry about each other. So then they have to have a right to the water, for example. Um, and then the water gets divvied up in terms of property rights. So it, it turns from a public good into essentially uh, a private good in which everybody has a piece of the action. Um, and the, the real problem is when that becomes necessary, but it is not recognized in the institutions that are being used to manage the water so that you actually do get that fight. Who's going to get the water? Uh, whoever is the biggest, whoever is uh, upriver, whoever has the best political connections. And that's where a lot of water is in the world these days. Okay. And when it comes, to, so how, how should we make those decisions then when it comes to deciding who gets the water? <laughs> It's, yeah, so, so the, the first thing is that the, the prices and markets and economics is not the first thing. What we want to do is we want to think about water in terms of its two really big roles. Uh, and you can knock it down into much, little, much smaller sub-roles, many more of them. But one role of water is the economic role, the water that we use for agriculture, for example, or for industry, or actually for our, our, our water in our houses, tap water. All of that is what I call economic water because it's kind of a, a private good in the economic jargon. It's an excludable private good. You could pay for it, you could trade it, whatever. But before we start talking about economic water, we have to talk about social water, the water that we share. And that would be water in the environment, uh, most obviously. And that water cannot be privatized. It cannot be held by any individual. Um, because the benefits are shared by everybody, it has to be owned collectively. And that means that there's a political process to decide uh, basically the division between political water and economic water uh, that's important because in a lot of poor countries, they don't care about that uh, political, uh, sorry, they don't care about the environmental water. They care about, for example, agriculture and irrigation. But as you get wealthier, you need to decide to have less water in your toilet and more water in the river. And that means taking water away from the private use of it and then leaving more in the environment. That's the, the gist of the discussion. So the, what I always say is the first thing you do is you set aside the, the social water through a political process, which if, if you're lucky is a, a, a transparent and a well-run political process. And if you're unlucky, it's totally corrupt. Um, and then whatever water is left over, you want to allocate with economic means. Okay, so the social water, that would be the water that we need for just to, to survive. Is that what you mean? In terms well, of just common pool water? There's, there's two, yeah, common good water. So stick with the commons and common good water and what we need to survive in terms of the big picture, the environment, right, ecosystems. Mm. Um, what people will often get confused by is, uh, but I need water to drink, otherwise I die, which is true. But that uh, water actually should be managed as a private good because the water that I drink leaves no water for you uh, and vice versa or bathe with or whatever. So then you have to get into... If you're worried about that, you definitely have to get into a process of taking care of poor people and making sure they get access to some of that water, because otherwise you're, you're, you're in trouble again. Okay. Okay, so there's a few things going on here, maybe. For a, <laughs> Thousands, for a in fact. Well, I'm, just, I'm just trying to, okay, we'll break it down here a little bit. So we have a sort of a common pool. We, that would think, think of that like a lake, I presume, sure. where everybody goes in and um, we all sort of make use of the lake, mm -hmm. but there's this whole sort of common property element to it. Mm -hmm. But 
some people might confuse that sort of common good with maybe perhaps the drinking water. Mm-hmm. And if I drink it, you can't drink it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we, sh- we need to allocate that maybe perhaps uh, using some sort, of, some sort of a price mechanism mm-hmm. or so, something in those regards. Maybe we'll we, we, we go down that route first. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. So why would we be using price basically to, alloc- to, to, to maybe to, to, to allocate that water? Yeah. Because a lot of people will probably say, well... Um, you know, I need water, so therefore, why should I be why should why should I be paying for it? Basic human rights, etc. Human rights, well, yeah, absolutely. So it's 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 morally sound, but it's uh, functionally uh, a problem. Um, the most common example I'll, I'll offer is that uh, when you are um, uh, when when you go to the to uh, uh, say a yeah uh, you go to uh, someone's house or no someone's party and they have uh, what you call an open bar. The bar mm. has free drinks. And you will observe that many people will drink many drinks and they will get very drunk. And then some people, they say, let's have a cash bar. And you say, ah, well, okay, now a beer or a pint is going to cost me uh, whatever, euros and pounds. It's going to cost me three euros each. I'm not going to have 30 beers. I'm going to have four, right? So we do know that when you put a price on something, people change how much they consume of that thing. Now, you might think, but water, but drinking water, I don't consume more than I would drink. And that's true for drinking. But that's not true for long showers. That's not true for irrigating your lawn. It's not true for leaks in your piping in mm-hmm. your house. So when you put a price on it, everybody starts to use less because it's expensive. Um, and I saw a sign in Scotland uh, a couple of years ago, and Scotland and Ireland both have very long traditions of free water versus pricing water. It's very controversial. But the sign said, mm-hmm. the, the, if the tap is on, there's money down the sink. And that's what you want to talk about. You want to say, don't put money down the sink. And that's why you have to price water. If, if it's priced, you're going to use it more efficiently. You're not going to have long showers. That makes a lot of sense. You're going to use it as you need it. Um, there's probably an equity trade-off there as well. Mm-hmm. And how do we deal with the fact that maybe, you know, if you put a price on something, some people can afford that more than others. And th- there's an issue there. Absolutely. And the same is true. The same is true for rent. The same is true for food, transportation, healthcare, health insurance. Um, uh, and so many other energy, obviously there's a thing called energy poverty, water poverty mm-hmm. is the same. So in all of those cases, what you want to do is help poor people by helping them be less poor. You want to give them money. Uh, and, um, and, and that's a version of welfare, right? What you don't want to do is say, uh, we're going to have a different price of water for poor people. Uh, and then rich people are going to have to pay or less, not poor people are going to have to pay a different price. And the reason that's not a good idea is because water companies are not really good at uh, running welfare programs. And you just want them to sell water at the same price to everybody, like we sell petrol at the same price to everybody. And if you're poor, you're going to get a top up, you're going to get some additional income to help you out. And that'll help you afford that gasoline, it's going to help you afford that water. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Because like my own research is in energy and, en- and energy poverty is an issue. And one argument in that context is that, well, is energy poverty a distinct type of poverty or is it just a symptom of general poverty? Mm-hmm. Are, we just, are people just less well off? And this is one way that, that, that it, it, it transpires. And I never heard the phrase water poverty, but I, I think it's an, uh, probably coming from an Irish perspective that, you know, as you say, <laughs> the, the water charges are very controversial. But um, it's, it sounds like it's the same issue, basically. <laughs> it's, a, it's another symptom of, of general poverty. So if you need to help to make ends meet, well, then use the tax benefit system to maybe count for that and, and to, 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 uh, to, to provide the resources if, if those resources are constrained. That sounds like the argument there. And it gets worse. It gets worse because if you don't do that and you do, for example, say, we're going to make water free or cheap for everybody because water is a human right, 
then the people that end up with the water are usually the richer people. And the poor people do not end up with water. And the examples of this are very common in the poorest countries of the world, right? You can go to India, you can go to Brazil, you go to the, the marginal areas that are on the periphery of these cities. And in the, in the favelas and the slums, they will not even have water service, right? There are no pipes going there. Uh, electricity service is actually more reliable, more likely to have in those areas because electricity is very visible. But water, no. And what happens is the, the rich people who live in the center of town, they tend to have water service at those very low affordable prices that are supposed to be pro-poor, but that's actually going to the rich people. And then the poor people, they have to buy water off of a tanker or they have to informally collect it. And that will cost them literally 10, 20, 80 times more than the piped water that their rich neighbors are enjoying. So these, these cheap water programs often end up helping the richest we're, and leaving the poorest um, stranded, dry, whatever you want to call it, because there's no money to pay for the system to actually expand to the, to the slums. And when they do, and this is the key one, when they do come to the slum and they do charge the entire price, the whole cost of service, the poor people are actually now getting a discount compared to what they paid before for better quality water. That'll blow your mind. It's like the first time I learned that, I was like, come on. But it's, it's like that. And, and it's not an accident because rich people have a very big play you said you asked it earlier about political economy. The rich people have a very big play and, and say in what rules and regulations are made, and they make rules and regulations that serve themselves. One thing you mentioned at the start was that when we have um, say the, the water for consumption or the private use, and then we have maybe common pool, and you separate out the two, why? what's the rationale going on there? Because the way I would think of it is that maybe you're, you are, there's sort of competition between the use of the water for private use and for public use. Why would why would we, why would we separate the two out? Because um, so say that I like rivers and you don't like rivers, uh, and uh, but rivers benefit both of us in a sense. Um, what we get is a one size fit all solution as far as what how much river we're going to have. So in a political process, maybe that's fifty one percent vote for how much water could be in the river, and forty nine percent lose that vote. And and that is what you're going to have. You're going to have a one size fit all process. When it comes to private water consumption, uh, which could be drinking water, which we probably have the same because we're humans, but then showers, that starts to get more interesting. Then you get into pools and yards, lifestyle kind of water consumption. Mm -hmm. And and at that point, you want people to have the freedom to consume as much water as they're willing to pay for based on their own habits, but also not be penalized by what other people are doing. So you want that economic water to be rationed uh, so that it doesn't cut into the, the common water that we're sharing. So that your long shower, I'm blaming you right now, or my big lawn is not going to destroy the resource that we both uh, enjoy. Okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. Absolutely. That's and uh, okay. So we're competing based based on um, the the portion that 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 isn't going to encroach on maybe the, the common value aspect. Yeah, but look at look at uh, police officers, for example. Right. Both of us want to have public security, and we want police officers to to do their job and keep us safe. And you don't know and I don't know when we're going to need a police officer, but we want them to be there. But on the other hand, you know, I don't care about how much whiskey you drink. And you don't care about how much, whiskey, how much whiskey I drink. And so we have our own individual budgets and, and they don't, we don't affect each other. But I don't want to have a say in how much police protection you get or vice versa, unless it's through a deliberative political process where we agree that this is a good idea. Another thing that, that you talk about is maybe more the supply side when it comes to um, water services. And um, maybe you could tell us a bit about that, like the monopoly aspect of, of, of suppliers and how this can play out in terms of, of, of the, the service that's provided? Monopolies, uh, economists don't like monopolies because monopolies, um, they, uh, they can serve themselves instead of serving their customers. Um, and 
in, in um, and that means that monopolies um, should be, oh, and there's different kinds of monopolies. There's the one that's like the monopoly that Apple has over the name iPhone, which is kind of a, a market monopoly. It's a bit temporary because Samsung can come in with a better phone and, and Apple has a great monopoly on a product that nobody wants. Then you have mm-hmm. monopolies that are established by the government, which is a monopoly on like postal service, for example, in some countries. Um, and then you get into the what's called a natural monopoly. And water uh, is a natural monopoly, meaning the distribution of water is a very expensive proposition. And once you have a distribution system, there's really hard to introduce competition for that uh, water distribution by building literally a, another set of pipes to every house in the city, let's say. So... We know it's a natural monopoly, which means that you you have to deal with monopoly dynamics, which means that you're going to have to regulate it to uh, keep the water utility from charging way too much money for what is actually uh, uh, important for life, uh, and that they but so they can still recover enough revenue to cover their costs to keep the system working and not leaking all the water away or bursting here and there. So you're going to have regulation on any water monopoly. And then the question is going to be, or any water service, I should say, because they're all monopolies with some interesting exceptions. But for most people in rich countries, there's the exceptions are, are not interesting. So you're going to have regulation. And really important, and I think this might be one of your next questions, it doesn't matter if the water utility is owned by investors or owned by the public. You still need regulation because the people that are running the monopoly always have the incentive to serve themselves instead of their customers. Can we just maybe pick through the incentives that are at play mm-hmm. here, basically? Mm-hmm. So the utility is supplying the service. They want to maybe maximize the rents to them as mm-hmm. opposed to maybe to the consumer. Mm-hmm. What way can they maybe design or structure the system so that they extract as much rent as they can from, from, from the system? Oh, the, the way they could do it the most? Or, or what way happens or tends to play out, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So there's... There's kind of two ways that it happens, and uh, and, and this tends to fall in the lines of, of uh, municipal or publicly owned utilities versus investor-owned utilities. So investor-owned utilities are kind of easy. The way they would do it is by more or less charging more money uh, and making super profits, right? So rents, as you just mentioned. Um, and that is because they are uh, profit-seeking corporations that can pay dividends to their shareholders. Now, uh, that's everybody understands that kind of intuition. You're just going to get, you know... Uh, uh, ripped off by the water company. Um, And the alternative is a a municipal or a publicly owned utility that are not-for-profit kind of by definition. They can't necessarily charge more money because they can't distribute a bunch of dividends because they don't have shareholders. But what they can do is not show up to work or not pick up the phone or not clean the machinery that keeps the water safe for drinking. Uh, They can Mm -hmm. hire their, their cousins to work in the office and inflate the wages bill. So they can find lots of ways of not delivering service and still taking money that is, uh, the, and the result is still bad for consumers. Okay. And is there any examples that you've come across in your, or I'm sure there's many, but any, any that you can share with us? <laughs> yeah, where are there not examples is the answer. <laughs> right, okay, um, okay. No, so I'll, I'll give you some, some uh, examples which are, which are interesting. So in the, um, now you're, Wait, which university are you at? You're in the oh, so Queens. I'm in Queens and Belfast, Belfast, Northern Ireland. Okay, you're in Northern Ireland. Which, uh, okay, so this listeners in Ireland and the UK as well. Uh, so this is great. So we'll stick with the British Isles. So um, the British Isles are really interesting because you have uh, essentially four different systems. You've got mm. uh, Wales. Uh, so let's, the, the the easiest one or the 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 worst one depends on who you talk to is in England, 
the water utilities are investor-owned utilities, and there's roughly uh, about 15 of them. Sometimes it, it varies on the definition, but they're owned by investors, and they're in the marketplace, and they are regulated by Ofwad. Then you have Scottish Water, which is owned by the government of Scotland, and it is regulated by the government of Scotland, but it is essentially a, a publicly owned water provider. Uh, and then you have Northern Ireland, where water is free, uh, and it is run by, I believe, the British government. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the, uh, pro the norm in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, where water was free, off and on, off and on. I don't know what it is these days. I think it's back to being free again. Then Wales is really interesting because Wales had an investor-owned utility that was more or less taken over by a nonprofit or a charity that is now run almost as a cooperative. Uh, so it makes profits, but then it uses the profits to benefit the people of Wales. So it's kind of a mm -hmm. hybrid between English and Scottish. Now, and I wrote a paper on this you can link to for your, uh, for your listeners. Uh, I, learned, I learned a hell of a lot looking into this. I thought it was easy. It was not easy. So, so the exploitation in Wales, I think, is almost the lowest, okay? Because what happens is people will pay their bills, and they're not too upset about profits because the profits will go to planting trees or something like that. So people are pretty cool about paying their bills. This is important because you need money to make these systems reliable and work over time. In Scotland, uh, they were pretty bad in terms of their performance for uh, a couple, uh, let's say a decade or so after the Big Bang privatization in 1990 in England, because they were being compared to each other. Wales was also being compared. Um, and Scotland was doing pretty poorly because it was running more or less like a department of government, which was a little bit sloppy. If You can use all your stereotypes here. In England, they, um, to make it very simple, they invested hundreds of billions of pounds in improving their networks, but they were allowed to take uh, roughly speaking, uh, about, let's say, 10% of that. So let's say 150, 100, uh, 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 say 50 billion pounds, which is a hell of a lot of money, uh, of profits out of their companies and distribute that to shareholders. And without getting into the details, which I actually don't understand because they're dark and devious, there's a lot of ways of, of, of turning, of using financial engineering to take even more money out than should be taken out. So there's some been some mm. some devious stuff going on there that is not good for the customers of water in England. Then what you get in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland by extension is this back and forth about how you can't exploit the people of Ireland by charging them a price of water whatsoever. So uh, it has to be free, but then the system gets almost no maintenance for decades and there's lots of leakage. And as you probably remember, Northern Ireland had a massive outage about eight years ago or so when the pipes froze and no one had water for a long time. Uh, and they realized, man, we have to start building the network out to make it work, and that costs money, so we'll start charging customers, and everybody freaked out because a whole bunch of really highly paid consultants were paid to do almost nothing, and some people said, okay, well, now we're paying, but we're being rip ripped off, so it went back to free again because of a political decision. So Ireland is, is, is going back and forth because essentially they don't have enough money to run the system uh, from the public purse, uh, but people don't want to be charged for it, so the system is really in in danger of, of having uh, reliability issues i'm i'm like i'm pro water charges and this is, it's a real divisive issue in ireland but for all the reasons that we talked about um and it seemed like the one thing like in ireland was that uh, it, the water charges were brought in at a time where a lot of cutbacks and this was nearly like the straw that broke the camel's back yes, and yes, a real yes. political a real political uh, issue around all that Oh, and they didn't, they didn't refund the rates also. So they, people had been paying for water indirectly through property taxes, 
and they mm. raised the water charges above zero, but they didn't reduce the taxes, which I believe is a really bad idea. So that was very unpopular. Yeah. What, what are the lessons to be learned maybe from the likes of the, the, UK, or the, the English experience? Is it a case of packaging it, making sure that people are aware that this, this is the, the charge is going towards the maintenance of the system, making sure the regulations are in place, that it does actually go to the maintenance of the system, not towards the sort of the inefficiencies that, 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 you, that you mentioned? How do you put in a system in place that maybe avoids some of the pitfalls that we've been discussing? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, you've just asked four different questions. So let me, okay, so I'm going to say a couple things that are the comp and what you're saying. So I think one of the things that's really interesting that's not widely understood is the role of the regulator, as I mentioned. And regulators tend to be professional people. Uh, they often, and this is interesting, they come through the revolving door, so they're from industry. This can be massively problematic, right? They might have all kinds of conflicts of interest. At a minimum, they have sympathies for those they are regulating. And you can get a problem with what's called regulatory capture in economics, right? Regulatory capture is the regulator works for you against the people that you're supposed to be, so works for industry against the people that they're supposed to be protecting from industry. So this is a known problem. And this happens when they have a conference and the regulators show up and they're given a lovely steak meal, uh, all kinds of, you know, the open bar again, right? Go ahead and drink all you want, paid for by, you know, your friends down at the water company. So the regulatory capture is a huge problem. A, a way to around that that I have proposed is to have citizens as regulators. And it's a version of just randomly choosing citizens um, and putting them on the regulatory board and saying, you're in charge of regulation. And people say, oh, but they're not professional. They're not experienced. They don't know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, but the job of the industry and the job of the regulation itself is to be clear enough that normal citizens can understand it and make decisions. And if you make it too complicated for citizens who are regulators, how do you think citizens who are not regulators are going to understand it? Because they won't. And so I believe this is a, a major interesting problem. And what I talked earlier about Wales and that kind of cooperative format, this is a closer to citizens being regulators, if you, if you want, right? Because they are the owners. So this is very important, the, the role of the regulator. Second, uh, if you're going to do something like uh, in Ireland and you're going to impose charges for water uh, to fix the leaky system, let's say, uh, and, you're, and, and, and you promise you're going to reduce rates, the property taxes, uh, then number one, uh, you start fixing the system. Number two, you reduce rates. Then number three, you start raising charges. You don't raise charges and not reduce rates and not fix the system. It's completely the wrong order psychologically because people, after decades of, of bad experiences, they want to see results first and pay after. Right. And, and interestingly enough, in the aid business, there's a kind of aid called pay for results where the aid organization will, will donate money towards the uh, recipient in some poor country only after they show results. They won't give the money ahead of time because everybody wants to see results. Right. And if DFID, the, the Department of what's it, uh, International Development from the UK, if DFID can do this in, in East Africa, why can't they do it for their own water? Why can't the UK government do it for their water providers inside the country? So there's a psychology, psychological problem there uh, that Ireland completely failed, uh, which is sad uh, because in the end, the customers suffer. Absolutely. That's really interesting. That whole idea of the um, citizens as, as regulators, it reminds me a little bit. So we have this, well, in, 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 the, in the Republic, it's the citizens assembly and it was brought in where you had loads of people sitting around in a table and experts were brought in to maybe inform about maybe things like climate change and other sort of social issues. But one thing that really was useful is that it gave the powers that be a mandate from the people to say, well, we actually, we need to do something like, like something like climate change, which is really 
there's a lot of political hesitation, I think, around actually taking action, and this gave them the, that sort of momentum to, to get behind it. And I think, I think that could work really in this context in, for water. And there were there were monumental changes from the Citizens Assembly. I mean, they legalized gay marriage, legalized abortion. This is like Absolutely, totally yeah. unexpected, right? But it yeah, happened yeah. because the citizens were engaged and they understood the process and they trusted the process. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Um, some other aspects that, that you've worked on when it comes to maybe uses of water and sort of maybe political influence. And you're based in, based in the Netherlands and I suppose there's a lot of agriculture there. Do, do you see maybe, for example, like lobby groups, like agricultural lobby groups who would maybe influence the management of water or, or similar? Like, how, how does that play out, I wonder? No, it's almost always a disaster. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, it's a very, very wet country, so it doesn't have a water quantity problem. It has a water quality problem. Uh, and the Dutch uh, performance on the uh, Water Framework Directive, which uh, is devoted to uh, ecosystem uh, sustainability in terms of quantity and quantity, the Dutch are almost always at the, at the bottom end of the rankings in terms of quality because of so much uh, agricultural runoff, basically. Um, and uh, the Dutch are very excited about being a big uh, uh, agricultural exporter. They make some money, and they make a lot of money off of it. Uh, and and when you go and you say you need to clean up your 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 um, affairs, then uh, they get pushback saying, "Hey, we make jobs, we create blah 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 tax revenue, and so on and so forth." Um, in in the case of a, a lot of parts of the world where water is actually scarce uh, and uh, uh, and quant- quality is not as much of a concern compared to quantity then you get a pushback, usually a version of, uh, well, you want to eat, don't you? Then let us use as much water as we want. Um, that is uh, rather hollow. I mean, every industry in the world will tell you, uh, you can't increase our costs because we're going to go out of business. Uh, so, uh, But then every industry in the world, when those costs do go up, they don't go out of business and they end up finding ways to figure it out. So um, when you make water uh, scarce or you, or sorry, you, you make it artificially scarce through a regulation, right? Uh, you can put a restriction on consumption. Um, then what farmers do is they, they do as they, they substitute, they do, uh, trying to get the right jargon here. They, they substitute one input for another. Now, uh, an example that's really a good one from, uh, California where I'm from is uh, growing alfalfa in the desert. Everybody has heard about this. They have all uniformly thought this is so stupid. But then when I went and I talked to farmers who grew alfalfa in the desert, which I literally did, and it wasn't a very nice place, but it it was definitely a desert. They said, look, if we grow this alfalfa with water, um, it's a very profitable crop because the water we get for free, they get it from the Colorado River, which is an extremely um, endangered river. Um, They get it for free from the river uh, and they can put up to three meters. They put up to three meters of water on the land and most of it runs off, but uh, some of it uh, back into the river, which is convenient. Uh, about half, and then some of it, uh, the rest of it gets used to grow alfalfa. And alfalfa is a really profitable crop in the sense of the input is free, and the other major input is a alfalfa harvesting machine, which is basically a big lawnmower. And all you do need is one guy to go down and lawn, mow down the whole field and make these bales of alfalfa, um, and then sell it to whoever's making, um, you know, uh, m- mostly for, for dairy. Um, it's a low labor, high water crop. If you want to switch to a high-labor, low-water crop, uh, and I always use the example of strawberries, then uh, you could do that. But now the water is still free, but labor is really expensive relative to that. So the profits are lower for the farmer. And farmers around the world, when they sell into the marketplace, they want money. They don't want water. They don't want alfalfa. They want strawberries. They actually want money. And this actually gets into the really interesting case of where farmers will sell water to make more money than they would make farming the water, using the water to farm. 
And that's also part of this process that you can introduce in places. So farmers always want to make more money and regulations around farming are almost always devoted to helping farmers make more money. And very often the environment is the loser. Like one thing I always think is like the farmers, because they have, they can organize themselves into these sort of lobby groups, they yep. can, they have better bargaining power when oh, it yeah. comes to these sort of these decisions. Yeah. So would that be an example where they can sort of bargain, well, we need this, this cheap water or, and then it distorts the prices that they get and then it distorts the distribution of the, of the resource from, from then on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of that is that, remember, we talked earlier about the commons, right? So say that this river, the Colorado River, uh, is, is, is being converted into a private good, which is what we were just talking about. Then all of the people who like the river, who don't even live next to the river, but they like, they like the idea of the river, the people in Mexico who uh, depend on the, the delta ecosystem of that river to, for all of the uh, ecosystem there, all of those people that enjoy that river, they lose out individual or as, as a group, as a collective, uh, but the farmer gains as an individual. And so if you get, you know, one farmer who can make, let's say, a million dollars of extra profit with the free water, and you and I get an extra $10 of benefit from that river, then that farmer has a huge incentive to go and lobby the politicians to be allowed to use that water. Whereas you and I, we suffer indeed, but $10 is not a huge loss, and we have to live our lives, and we can't afford with the $10 loss to buy a plane ticket to go to see the politicians. So the farmers mm. have the, the means... And they have uh, so they have the incentive um, to to go and lobby on behalf of a law that'll move water from the public into the private. And 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 their loss is very concentrated. And the individual, like our ten dollars across many people, is, when you add it all up, it's probably greater. But because Absolutely. it's, it's ten dollars each, it's not worth our while to do anything about it. Yep. And what's what's the solution? Or what? That's the big question, I suppose. Yeah. So, by the way, this is this is the dynamic explained in in the logic of collective action, right? A book by Manker Olson that was from the 1960s, and he called <coughs> he calls it the small exploiting the large, uh, and he means a small group exploiting the large group. So, the way to to get around that is for, um, like I said earlier, the political process has to engage with how are we going to use our water. Um, and in that process, I think the farmers are now much weaker because you have, you know, uh, representatives of the other 99% of the population that are making decisions. Uh, an alternative way of, of doing this is, uh, well, it's, it's all the same because you have to have, um, you, can have a, you can have a citizen rebellion. Uh, you know, the Greens or activists are, are marching with their pitchforks, uh, but really it's about laws and regulations. And uh, when those regulations come along, then um, the, those represent the, the public good. Uh, uh, or what's called the public trust sometimes in the case of water. The water should be reserved for the public trust. Um, and in th those cases, farmers are forced to cut back. And I'll give you actually an easy example of that, a really profound example of that. In the 1980s, um, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, lost a lawsuit uh, that was uh, backed by the, by the Audubon Society, I believe. It was a, uh, that's an environmental group in the United States. And that, was, that stopped Los Angeles from draining a lake. It was a very critical uh, habitat in the um, in California, and because of that lawsuit, Los Angeles could not take that water away to use for pools and so on. Um, and that was a benefit on, on, for the public on behalf uh, that was that was that was waged on behalf by an environmental organization that used a U.S. environmental law, the Environmental Protection Act, to to protect that lake from that uh, the, the the further reduction of the water levels. So that's an example of of the people kind of winning back some water that had been taken away. Another, so another thing you touched on before as well is that um, this issue of not internalizing maybe some of the externalities associated with um, 
the environmental impact of uh, certain processes. And one example I saw was where the price of pork and whatever negative, you maybe <laughs> give the details here because I'm probably missing out on something, but some of the negative externalities are not internalized in the production of the pork. And right. if there were, the actual increase in the un per unit was is quite marginal. So, you know, it seems like a no-brainer. Why don't we internalize these costs? What's at play here? What's going on? What's 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 stopping it? And is there any way we can we can um, we can solve that? Yeah, that's a that one's that one sucks basically because I mean what you're what you're referring to in this example, yeah, blew my mind when I first heard it. It was by another scholar, and he said that the the price of pork in the United States, if all of the the farmers would follow water quality regulations. The price of pork would go up by about about 15 cents a kilo. Now, um, that's not doubling the price of pork. The price of pork per kilo was probably three, four dollars, five dollars a kilo. So you're actually talking about increasing the price of pork by under five percent. And um, the that for most consumers is completely unnoticeable, uninteresting. Uh, but again, remember, most consumers, I, I I have a pork rib, you have a sausage, whatever that is. But the producers themselves, that for them, that looks like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. And what's interesting is that um, as a group, they would not be worse off if they were all subjected to the same regulation, because all of them would see their price, their charges, prices go up. Their sorry, their costs go up, and therefore all of them could see their prices go up because the same profit margins and so on. So they actually wouldn't be any worse off. So I think that most um, industry and farmers are in this category to me or have a knee-jerk reaction against any regulation that increases their costs. And they go to politicians, and this is the key problem. They say, if you do this to us, we'll go out of business, right? The original exemptions for agriculture, which are still uh, intact for the water, um, oh, geez, what was it called? The, the uh, Clean Water Act, in the, so almost 50 years ago, those exemptions were given to farmers because you know, they couldn't afford it or food security is important. And, and years later, decades later, we're still paying the price because those are very rich, very highly established farmers, and their pollution levels have gone up by a factor of 10. Uh, as an interesting side note, that's the exact same exemption that China had, for example, from the Kyoto Protocol because it was a poor country. And now China is the biggest uh, GHG emitter in the world based on being a poor country. Well, you have to worry a lot about these exemptions because they can grow very, very large. Now, if you wanted to get people to, to pay attention to this, um, you know, you could have a discussion that would be like, okay, the price of pork is going to go up by 15 cents a kilo. Um, and are you okay with that general public to make the law? That would be right. But the lobbyists don't allow that to happen. They, they, what they want to do is say, it's going to make it astronomically unaffordable, expensive. The same thing as the energy people say when they talk about unaffordable, they want to have affordable energy. That's kind of garbage when you think about it. If my energy price goes up by five euros a, a month because I have green energy, I don't really pay that much attention. And that's still affordable to me. But the coal industry says, no, 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 no. It has to be coal-powered because it's that's affordable energy. So they use this affordability as a cudgel against politicians who are afraid of constituents, and then it leads to bad policies. Yeah. You really touch on a, on a personal bugbear in that. I feel like if you're a good politician, or maybe if you're a successful politician, it means that you're good at keeping people happy, which is not necessarily good for making good decisions mm -hmm. because you have to make, sometimes you have to make you know, unpopular decisions. They right. are sometimes the good decisions. When you're looking at these problems with, with a pure economic framework, you're trying to think, well, this is the solution. And you look at the cold, hard sort of facts in front of you. But it really, it comes, when it boils down to it, there are, you know, they're, they're in the, they're, you're dealing with people and people are trying to keep other people happy. And then the decisions sort of get distorted a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
how do we how do we work within these sort of political constraints when it comes to making good decisions? Or how, how do we you know how, how do we solve that issue? Well, so like humans have a real problem with patience, don't they? I mean, people you know you say, oh, do you want to have ice cream today or do you want to have a pension tomorrow? So people have ice cream today and then they have no pension. I don't know what to do about that. That's a bit sad. But um, and my father's in that situation, for example, you know. Uh, but I think most people can actually understand, you know, costs today for benefits tomorrow. And I don't think a lot of these policies are being pitched that way. They're kind of being pitched as a, as a terrible idea no matter what. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, what you were getting at there, I've heard this kind of uh, struggle before. And what should we do? And, and the way I pitch this is, look, if you raise the price of water today, so this is back to any, just in general, right? You, make, you, you, you reflect the scarcity today. You do that because you want to have that water tomorrow. You, you're paying today more to get the reliability tomorrow. It's the same thing with you pay a carbon tax today so that we don't have climate chaos tomorrow, right? And, um, and this is actually ignoring the fact that a, a carbon tax or a water tax, a scarcity tax, both of those, that money is not burned. That money actually is sitting somewhere. It could be redistributed back to citizens, which is, I think, also a very missing part of this discussion. But let's just keep to the simple thing. Are you willing to pay more today to have more security tomorrow as far as water supplies? Almost every citizen will be like, that sounds like an okay trade-off, but that's not how it's presented to them. And that, I believe, is, is the, the political mistake. They're not framing it correctly. Uh, then when you think about, we're going to pay a, a water surcharge or a carbon surcharge today, and we're going to refund the money per citizen, right? Not per, not, not per consumption, but per citizen. That means it's actually a, a progressive kind of tax because the people that use more energy and more water tend to be rich. And the people that get the money back on a refund basis, they end up doing better net-net when they pay higher for water or energy, but they get that big rebate back for carbon or, or water. So that's, like I think, a huge missing, missed opportunity for politicians. They can, prevent the, they can present this as pro-environment and pro-poor, and then all you have to do is say, but we're also anti-rich. I'm just thinking of my own, con- my own frame of reference when it comes to climate change and use or energy and carbon tax that that's the, the argument that's really put forward and it seems like uh, it seems like a no-brainer but there still is a lot of pushback i i, I find mm-hmm. behind because i think i think politicians really are they're really slow to, to to embrace these things that if if they if they know it's going to be i know if it's going to be perceived well well then they'll follow through but if they feel that it might be perceived negatively well then they'll um they're hesitant and that hesitance needs to be more you know greater than what the actual expected pushback is likely to be absolutely from my observation anyway yeah. um so are there perhaps political this seems like a political constraint is there a compromise then the way to, to get around that to try and maybe to, to uh, like for example in the climate change uh, perspective some people would suggest well maybe we don't do through, through the tax benefit system we give a lump sum transfer because it's more salient and also then it, it maybe hits or it's more salient for people on middle incomes perhaps not as good distributionally but politically mm-hmm. gets over that hurdle and maybe it's a political price to pay mm-hmm. are there similar sort of you know constraints in, in the water context that maybe we have to take into account no absolutely i would i would i would do it just like you said so the the water so uh, i mean you know, you can you, everything I say here with water, you can put carbon. So I'll just talk with water. Mm. So here you are, you're using water, you're going to have a higher price of water based on this new tax, which is a scarcity tax. Um, and some people are going to do nothing different. Some people are going to not install a pool, or some people are going to take a shorter shower, whatever people will adjust. So we know that the on the average, the, the prices per unit will go up, 
We also know that on average, the number of units will go down, but there's going to be revenue. Then that revenue is going to be sent back to uh, every uh, customer based on the total number of customers. So you and I, we all get the same rebate. And the reason I think this is a good way to do it is because nobody is upset about getting a check in the mail that is to their benefit, right? It's like, wow, I, whether you get 10 pounds back or 100 pounds back, you're like, I just got some money today. I am a very happy person. So every time you get a check from the water utility, you love that system. And that I have actually never seen put in place. I have seen like it reduces your monthly charge or whatever, you know, comes back in your benefits like you just mentioned for poor people. That's part of their income. But then, you know, their income for poor people might go from whatever, 300 a week to, or 300 is probably too much, 200 a week to 220 a week, right? And they're like, I'm still getting 200 more or less. But like an actual middle class person who has never gotten a check from their water provider who gets a check back, that is going to be massively successful from a political perspective, uh, uh, PR perspective. And it's their own money, but it's it's the money from everybody. And the key idea is that money keeps the system um, reliable so that everybody is better off, even those rich people. I know time is sort of running out, but um, I skipped over this general intro. Maybe it might be interesting just to say a bit about yourself and um, if you could tell us like, like how you got into this area, because I, I find it really interesting and the whole political thing really fills a gap in, in understanding that, that I wouldn't have, have normally had. But, so how did you get into, into water in the first place? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I've told the story before, but it's, it's, it's a good one. It's worth it. So uh, thanks for asking. But the, uh, when I started uh, graduate school uh, in 2002 or so, I wanted to study government failure, and I wanted to study uh, the drug war, and I wanted to go to Peru to do field work to talk to farmers about why they grew coca uh, for either the illicit market, which was tea and coca products, or the illicit market, which is cocaine. Um, and because I am, uh, for those of you who are uh, not seeing this video interview, I'm not from Peru, uh, and et cetera, I um, was told uh, quite quickly that this would be a deadly idea uh, because uh, not a good idea for a gringo to go around asking uh, farmers about drugs. So I actually coincidentally was chatting with uh, a professor who was, I was working with, and he said, um, yeah, there's this really strange case of these guys fighting over water. And I thought, like any normal person, how is that possible? And even more interesting, they were in a co-op together, right? And mm -hmm. these guys were actually the major uh, water utilities of Southern California. So from that process, uh, from that first uh, statement, I remember actually standing in the hallway having this conversation. I wrote a dissertation, which is called Conflict and Cooperation Inside of an Organization. Right? It was a case study of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. And here is the key difference between me and most water economists or political economists, which is why I call myself a political economist. Most water economists, they, they just do optimization theory, and they're trying mm. to figure out the most efficient way to trade markets or trade water on markets or whatever. But almost all of it is based on, on paper calculations. And why I call myself a political economist is I say, well, okay, I know about markets, I know about prices, but really what's going on with water? And water, this social good, economics doesn't have a lot to say about social goods. And so government failure does play a big role. Because the government failure is that the water goes to those who are powerful instead of those who deserve it, let's say, from a very ethical perspective. Economists don't like talking about ethics, but this is ethical. And so mm -hmm. that's how I got started. And I started with municipal water distribution. Then I started a blog, uh, which used to, I shut it down, Agronomics. And in my blog, I got opinions and questions from thousands of people that forced me to consider so many different dimensions of water that I, over the time I started integrating those uh, dimensions into what I consider to be a, a, a good overview of how the sector works, which is why I started to, earlier talking about social water versus private water, because most economists sure. don't get that. 
Yeah, well, as as uh, evidenced by my uh, my quick line of questioning. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, hopefully you do with <laughs> energy. You, you get with energy because there's the negative externalities of energy consumption. Sure, right? that's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, David. Well, I know you're you're busy and uh, time is running up. So I'll just say thanks a million for, uh, for for agreeing to talk. I really enjoyed it. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks, David, for a great episode, and thank you to all the patrons for supporting and making it possible. If you'd like to chip in, check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash at the margin all right talk to you next time catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.